Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, December 10th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Twitter is accused of keeping secret blacklists to limit users. Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema leaves the Democratic Party. Italy, Japan, and the UK announced plans to merge projects for a new fighter jet. A Moscow shopping mall catches fire. The U.S. House backs a record military spending bill. 28 oil tankers get log jammed in Turkish waters. China and Saudi Arabia sign a strategic partnership agreement. The Keystone Pipeline is shut down following a Kansas oil spill. Economists agree the U.S. is heading into a shallow recession. And scientists discover a lost world in Greenland after sequencing two million-year-old DNA. In our top story, a special report that Twitter had secret blacklists to limit users. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Axios, New York Post, CNN, and Fox News. Journalist Barry Weiss on Friday claimed internal company documents showed Twitter practiced different methods of censorship before Elon Musk bought the platform in October. She said that it created secret blacklists to limit users and restricted the visibility of disfavored tweets and certain right-leaning accounts. This comes after Weiss, a former opinion editor at the New York Times, who now runs the free press, was given access, along with fellow independent journalist Matt Tybee, to a trove of company documents by Musk. In the second batch of Twitter files, Weiss zeroed in on several specific accounts. These included Stanford University's Dr. J. Bhattacharya, conservative activist Charlie Kirk, and Chaya Raichik, who operates the Libsoft TikTok account. Weiss suggested that Twitter strayed from its original mission of giving everyone the power to create and share ideas and information instantly without barriers by developing means to suppress identified users. She included screenshots of the interface Twitter used to bar certain accounts, showing tags that indicate their restricted status, and quoting several unnamed Twitter employees to support her claims. The most politically sensitive decisions were reportedly made by a group of top executives in the Site Integrity Policy and Policy Escalation Support. Twitter executives, including former head of legal policy and trust Vijaya Gadi and head of product Kayvon Baikpour, had previously denied shadow banning, stating in 2018, quote, we certainly don't shadow ban based on political viewpoints or ideology. Liberal media personalities on Twitter slammed Musk for giving Barry Weiss access to internal Twitter files, with some accusing him of conducting a PR stunt. Well, Eric, after those facts, we've got a few narrative spins. Here on the show, we'd separate the narrative spin from the facts of the story. The right narrative here is provided by the Federalist. The old Twitter regime never thought someone would buy them out, let alone release their inner workings, which is why they repeatedly lied to the American people about politically motivated shadow banning. They banned prestigious doctors from speaking out about COVID, libs of TikTok from freely disposing disturbing gender-affirming care for children, and conservative viewpoints in general. Entire swaths of the American political arena were wrongly silenced. Thank you, Adam. When there's a right narrative, you can count on there being a left narrative. And this one is being provided by Business Insider. 
These so-called Twitter drops are embarrassing nothing burgers. Twitter's use of different methods of sanctions is not a violation of the First Amendment, which applies only to state actors. U.S. federal courts have ruled time and time again, and as recently as 2020, that social media platforms are not state actors. What Weiss described is simply content moderation. What is a nothing burger? That's the Business Insider for you. They're very technical over at the Business Insider. Let's don't mince words here, Adam. Well, let's don't mince meat words into our nothing burgers. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. In our next story, Kirsten Cinema switches from the Democratic Party to an independent. And here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, Fox News, CBS, CNN, and CNBC. Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema on Friday announced she has left the Democratic Party and is registering as an independent. This comes after Democrats secured 51 seats in the Senate in the midterm elections. She will, however, continue to caucus with the Democrats. In an op-ed in the Arizona Republic, she cited increased partisanship and radicalization in both parties as her reason for changing. She also wrote, quote, Americans are told that we have only two choices, Democratic or Republican, but most Americans believe this is a false choice. She further stated her intention is, quote, to be independent and work with anyone to achieve lasting results. I committed I would not demonize people I disagreed with, engage in name-calling, or get distracted by political drama. Though her departure will likely mean she can vote less along party lines, she expects to retain her committee assignments. Cinema, who was up for re-election in 2024, has already angered liberals, who've hinted at putting up Arizona Representative Ruben Gallego as a challenger. Cinema, who took office in 2018 after the death of Republican John McCain, has often joined Senator Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia, in blocking Democratic legislation. She will be the third liberal-leaning independent senator, joining Bernie Sanders from Vermont and Angus King from Maine, who also caucus with the Democrats. During her first term, Cinema has bucked most of her party by helping block a corporate tax increase in the Inflation Reduction Act and hindering attempts to abolish the filibuster. Adam, thank you for the facts of this very political story. As expected, some political narratives have emerged, beginning with the Democratic one coming from Mother Jones. Cinema's career has been a giant metamorphosis, and Democrats could never count on her to be in their corner. This is just another step in her unpredictable path. And Democrats will have to continue to work around her harmful opposition to the filibuster and her devotion to the Wall Street set while accepting her support on issues that she agrees with them on. As with left and right narratives, Democratic narratives are always followed by a Republican narrative. And this one is provided by Daily Wire. Democrats should take this as a warning about how far to the left they've moved. There's less room nowadays for moderates, and those who don't lean far enough left often pay the price by getting harassed while out in public. Cinema probably won't be the last defector. And there's a cynical narrative coming from MSNBC. Cinema says her policy stances and voting habits won't change. If she's still going to caucus with Democrats, 
What's the point of changing affiliations? Well, it's all about her political survival. She's highly unpopular with Democrats, but now she won't have to face a Democratic challenger because the party won't want to risk splitting the left-leaning vote. This isn't about principles. It's about re-election. In our next story, Japan, United Kingdom, and Italy are collaborating on a new fighter jet. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Financial Times, CNN, Reuters, Breaking Defense, and BBC News. Italy, Japan, and the United Kingdom on Friday announced a plan to integrate their fighter jet development projects. This is Japan's first non-American major industrial defense collaboration since World War II. Japan wants to expand its relationship with allies beyond the U.S. with an eye on potential military competition with China and Russia. Despite not being part of the project, the U.S. Department of Defense endorsed Japan's partnership. The Global Combat Air Program plans to develop a sixth-generation fighter aircraft by 2035 and improve upon their current use of British Typhoon fighters and Japanese F-2s. In a joint letter, the three countries' leaders stated, quote, We are committed to upholding the rules-based, free and open international order, which is more important than ever at a time when these principles are contested and threats and aggression are increasing. Japan expects to double its defense spending over the next five years. This collaboration is the second sixth-generation fighter design project in Europe, in addition to a venture between France, Germany, and Spain. More countries such as Sweden could potentially be involved in the future. Britain's BAE Systems, Japan's Mitsubishi, and Italy's Leonardo are expected to be the key companies in the project's development as the nations integrate their efforts. Thank you, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative, and it's provided by Nikkei. Not only are Japan, Italy, and the UK combining their technology prowess to create innovative defense fighters, but the countries are also strengthening alliances to preserve global democracy by building strong national advantages in their defense industries. These countries can build a robust system to support a U.S.-led alliance. And there's an establishment critical narrative coming from Global Times. By drastically increasing its defense spending and engaging in large-scale military projects, Japan is creating an unstable security environment in East Asia. Tokyo is playing with fire by revisiting an interest in military activities that it abandoned for decades after World War II and throwing its lot in with an aggressive Western hegemonic order. And occasionally we have a statistics-based nerd narrative on our stories. This time, the Metaculous Prediction community has provided one, and they say that there's a 50% chance that Japan will respond with military forces if China invades Taiwan by 2035. Our next story is an update of the war in Ukraine, and it is day 289, and a blaze has destroyed a mall in Moscow. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Moscow Times, Newsweek, and Ukraine Forum. On Friday, a huge blaze broke out at one of Russia's largest malls in Moscow shortly after dawn, later spreading to over 18,000 square meters. Local officials said at least one person was killed. While a criminal investigation has been launched, there's been no suggestion of links to Ukraine so far. However, Ukrainian attacks within Russian territory continued to be reported on Thursday. An explosion heard in the border region of Belgorod caused a fire at an undisclosed location. An explosion was also heard over Crimea, but Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov 
said that a drone was shot down before reaching its intended target. Meanwhile, a new video emerged of Russian President Vladimir Putin in which he defended Russia's strikes in Ukraine's energy infrastructure. Some commentators and reports asserted that he was, quote, drunk, though this couldn't be confirmed. In the video, Putin said, There's a lot of noise right now about our strikes against the energy infrastructure of the neighboring country. Yes, we are doing it. But who started it? Who struck the Crimean Bridge? Who blew up the power lines of the Kursk nuclear power station? Who is not providing water to Donetsk? No one said a word about it anywhere, Putin continued, adding, at all, complete silence. Just as we make a move, do something in response, noise and crackle start over the whole universe. This will not prevent us from completing military objectives. On the ground, Russian attacks continued to be recorded in the regions of Donetsk, Dnipropetrovsk, Kherson, Kharkiv, and Sumy. Ukrainian officials said five civilians were killed and two more were injured in Donetsk, while eight people were injured in Kherson and four in Kharkiv. Pro-Russia officials in the Donetsk People's Republic, or DPR, said one civilian was killed in the same time period. Adam, thank you for the facts of this ongoing story, and we do have three spins that have emerged, beginning with an anti-Russian narrative coming from PBS NewsHour. This invasion is an egregious violation of international law. Putin's ultimate aim is to restore the Soviet empire, even if it takes massive bloodshed and false pretexts, such as calling the 2014 Ukrainian revolution after an election a coup. This unprovoked attack is the latest chapter in Putin's Orwellian attempt to rewrite history. And a pro-Russia narrative is provided by National Security Archive. NATO and the U.S. have ignored Russia's security concerns by breaking its promise not to expand eastward in return for German reunification. These concerns are legitimate, and taking them seriously would have avoided the Ukraine tragedy. And the Metaculous Prediction community is giving us a nerd narrative for this story. They say that there's a 52% chance that Russia will control any formerly Ukrainian territories other than LPR, DPR, or Crimea on January 1st, 2024. Turning our attention back to the United States as the U.S. House backs a record military spending bill. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Radio Free Europe, Defense News, Reuters, and Our World in Data. On Thursday, the U.S. House of Representatives approved legislation paving the way for the defense budget to hit a record $858 billion in 2023, $45 billion more than proposed by President Biden. The House approved a compromised version of the National Defense Authorization Act by a count of 350 to 80. This surpassed the two-thirds majority required to send the bill to the Senate. The fiscal 2023 bill allows a 4.6% pay increase for troops. It also purchases weapons, ships, aircraft, and military aid for both Taiwan and Ukraine. The Senate is expected to vote on the bill next week. It could potentially be signed into law by Biden before the end of the month, continuing a 60-year stretch of passing the legislation into law. In 2020, the U.S. had the highest defense spending in the entire world, at nearly $767 billion. China was the second biggest spender at nearly $245 billion. India came in third at $73 billion. Thank you, Eric. Our establishment critical narrative for this story is provided by Slate. 
Beyond the headline-grabbing non-spending provisions in this bill is a bloated budget that doesn't even take into account inflation or what it'll cost to replace weapons the U.S. has given to Ukraine. The increased spending is just going to buy the military more weapons, and not even ones geared toward modern-day challenges and threats. This bill deserves more scrutiny from politicians, the press, and citizens. And there's a pro-establishment narrative being provided by New York Times. For the U.S. to fulfill its obligations to defend its allies across the globe and defend itself, it needs even more spending. Military spending as part of the gross domestic product is actually less than it has averaged over the past 50 years. All branches are short of personnel, ships are poorly maintained, and it's doubtful the weapons industry would be able to meet the country's needs in case of a conflict. There must be a commitment to spending more on U.S. national defense. We're spending triple what China spends. I think they're getting better deals. We gotta we gotta learn how to shop better. That's I the deal. That's what it is. Yeah. I think we need to get a Costco card. The US needs to get a Costco card. Well gotta buy in bulk. We need to buy more from China. Maybe that's <laughs> the deal. That's the deal. We're buying American made products. They're, they're always Ch- twice well China's expensive. buying the products from us and they're changing the labels and selling it back in three times as much. That's why we're spending three times more. Yep. I just figured it out. You solved the world's problems, Adam. Thank you. I'll take my Nobel Prize, please. Thank you. Thank you. Our next story concerns 28 oil tankers that have been log-jammed in Turkish waters. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by Reuters, Money Control, and Marine Link. On Friday, 28 oil tankers were waiting to cross the Bosporus and Dardanelles, with Turkey citing the ship's lack of insurance papers as the reason for the logjam. This comes as the G7 countries, EU and Australia, have all agreed to bar shipping services, such as insurers, from allowing Russian oil exports unless it's sold at a low or capped price, to deprive Moscow of wartime income. The U.S. Department of the Treasury says the cap applies only to Russian oil and doesn't necessitate additional checks on ships crossing Turkish territorial waters. Turkey says it's part of a separate insurance measure since the start of this month, requiring ships to give proof of insurance for transit through the Bosporus Strait or when calling on Turkish ports. Ankara also stated that it's unacceptable to pressure Turkey over what it has called routine insurance checks, adding that it could remove the tankers from its waters or require them to furnish new insurance letters covering their journeys through Turkish territory. U.S. Secretary Janet Yellen said that since most of the tankers are carrying Kazakh oil, there's no reason the shipments should be subject to Turkey's new rules. The EU said the delays are unrelated to the price cap, and Turkey should continue verifying insurance, quote, exactly the same way as before. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. Let's take a look at the two spins, beginning with an establishment critical narrative coming from Splash 24-7. While the U.S. and Europe seek to pressure Turkey into obeying their rules rather than its own, the truth is that this new insurance verification procedure is aimed at preventing Russia from circumventing sanctions. If Western powers want to deprive Putin of oil revenue, they should be applauding the prudent move by Ankara. And the pro-establishment narrative is brought to us by finance. Since this is Kazakh oil and not Russian, there should be no issue here. 
with shipping companies claiming Turkey is asking for above-price cap commission, putting them at risk of facing sanctions, the U.S. and its allies have stepped in to resolve the issue and get oil moving westward again. China and Saudi Arabia cement ties. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, Economic Times, Al Arabia, and U.S. News and World Report. Saudi King Salman and Chinese President Xi Jinping on Thursday signed a comprehensive strategic partnership agreement as part of Xi's historic visit to Riyadh aimed at bolstering political and economic ties. The multiple strategic deals between the two countries included a memorandum of understanding with China's Huawei technologies on cloud computing and building high-tech complexes in Saudi cities. The Saudi press agency reported that Chinese and Saudi firms also signed over 30 deals for investment in green energy, information technology, cloud services, transport, construction, and other sectors. Meanwhile, during the China Gulf Summit on Friday, Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman said that the countries had discussed the possibility of establishing a Chinese Gulf free trade zone. Uneasy with China's growing influence in the Middle East, the U.S. termed Xi's visit an example of Beijing's alleged attempts to exert influence around the world and said it will have no impact on U.S. policy towards Gulf countries. Thank you, Eric. Our pro-China narrative on this story has been written by Global Times. Xi's trip is a fantastic opportunity for China to increase trade and cooperation with the Arab world, specifically its main oil-producing states. China and the Middle East are natural cooperative partners, as they have shared experiences in their respective struggles with Western imperialism. The Arab world has become tired of the condescending arrogance of the West and deserves a real international partner, such as China. And Don Mina is giving us the anti-China narrative. Though Xi's trip to Saudi Arabia may seem like a routine summit, in reality, it demonstrates China's desire to export its own brand of high-tech authoritarianism. China's goals are overall economic in nature, but they also seek to empower the region's despots within a system of totalitarian capitalism. For China, ideals like freedom and democracy mean nothing, and economic and geopolitical interests trump all. And the nerds of Metaculus have an opinion on this story. They say there's a 50% chance that there will be a mile-high building by February 2042. An oil spill in Kansas shuts down the Keystone Pipeline. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, Journal Record, KMBC, Bloomberg, and Courier. The Keystone Pipeline in the U.S. has halted operations after more than 14,000 barrels of crude oil spilled into a creek in Kansas on Wednesday night. Federal safety regulators are investigating the cause, but no timeline has been given for restarting the pipeline. Operated by Canada-based TC Energy, the more than 600,000-barrel-per-day pipeline ships heavy crude from Canada down to refiners in the U.S.-Texas Gulf Coast. TC Energy has isolated the pipeline segment where the leak occurred and is using booms to keep the spilled oil from moving downstream. News of the leak and subsequent closure of the pipeline prompted U.S. oil prices to climb to $75.44 a barrel before retreating to $72.57 a barrel. The massive spill, one of the largest in the U.S. in nearly a decade, 
could disturb the flow of crude supplies across the country at a time of market volatility due to fragile supplies. Patrick DeHaan, head of petroleum analysis at GasBuddy, said he fears the leak could impact oil suppliers to refiners in the short term. But if it lasts more than a few days, the consequences would be severe. Those were the facts, and we have three spins. And Politico is giving us the establishment critical narrative. The federal government refuses to learn anything from the numerous past leaks. Though drastically underreported to the public, oil pipelines leak all the time and cause accidents every year in the U.S. Keystone was supposed to be the safest pipeline ever built in North America, but inadequate infrastructure and lack of political will continue to put people, wildlife, and the environment at increased risk. And Hazmat Magazine has provided a pro-establishment narrative. There are reasons countries struggle to tackle these industrial accidents. There's no such thing as a spill, accident, or sabotage-proof way to transport oil in massive quantities. The only way to prevent oil ruptures from becoming ecological disasters is to invest significantly in advanced monitoring and build double-walled pipelines. A safer design with zero cleanup costs is the sole cost-effective and environmentally friendly measure in the long run. And there's a nerd narrative that says there's a 5% chance that the Keystone Pipeline system will be extended by at least 100 kilometers between U.S. President Joe Biden's inauguration and the end of 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. And you know what? I think there's a 3% chance that Joe Biden's going to build it himself. I bet you he will. There's only a 3% chance, Eric. Oh, that's true. I'm not, I'm not holding my breath. In our next story, in our next story, according to a Reuters poll, the U.S. is heading into a shallow recession. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Fox News, New York Post, and WeForum. Economists polled by Reuters predict that the U.S. economy is heading into a short and shallow recession in the coming year, unanimously expecting the U.S. Federal Reserve to go for a smaller 50 basis point interest rate hike on December 14th. 84 economists were polled between December 2nd through the 8th. Of the 45 that provided GDP forecasts, 27 predicted a contraction for two straight quarters or more at some point in 2023. Out of 48 that were asked, 35 said any recession would be short and shallow, 8 said long and shallow, 1 predicted short and deep, and 4 said there wouldn't be one at all. The predictions came after Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan claimed a shallow recession was likely to come in 2023. The news came alongside an NBC poll showing 68% of U.S. voters believe they're already in a recession, with 58% saying America's best years are in the past. Noriel Rubini, a New York University professor emeritus nicknamed Dr. Doom for his pessimistic predictions, has even warned that the S&P 500 could decrease by another 25% in the event of a severe downturn in 2023. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon told CNBC that while consumers and companies are in good shape, the $1.5 trillion U.S. consumers have in excess savings from pandemic stimulus programs may run out by mid-2023. The Fed last month raised interest rates by 0.75 for the fourth consecutive time, taking them to three and three quarters to four percent. Thank you, Eric. We have a few narrative spins for this story. Narrative A is provided by Washington Examiner. It's very rare that prominent economists agree on a policy matter as important as interest rates. 
Yet with wage inflation simply being too high, there are several signs that a recession is looming. The personal saving rate is too low, and savings are being used to finance current consumption alongside slowing factory activity. A hard landing is clearly coming for America. Narrative B is coming from Financial Times. Until now, the consensus economic view hasn't forecast a single U.S. recession since records began in 1970. Within the market, it's not the inevitable that happens, but rather the unexpected. And with the president of economists consistently being wrong surrounding recessions, maybe it's a sign that there won't be an economic crisis in 2023 after all. And there's a nerd narrative that says there's an 8% chance that the first U.S. recession before 2032 will lead to a depression, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. And in our final story, two-million-year-old DNA has revealed Greenland's lost world. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Nature, BBC News, Washington Post, and Scientific American. In a study published this week in the journal Nature, a team of scientists successfully sequenced two-million-year-old DNA from the northeastern tip of Greenland. The DNA sequence is the oldest obtained on record. The region is a polar desert today, but the new discovery paints a picture of a lush and verdant Greenland two million years ago, rich in biodiversity, including elephant-like mastodons, reindeer, geese, birch and poplar trees, and sea life teeming with algae and horseshoe crabs. The findings stunned scientists, as only microfossils from a rabbit and dung beetle had been discovered from that time period in Greenland before, which was 11 degrees Celsius to 19 degrees Celsius, or 51.8 degrees to 66.2 degrees Fahrenheit, hotter than today. Study lead professor Eske Villersleeve suggested that the mixture of temperate and polar species living side by side was unprecedented. Other surprises included the discovery of reindeer, which were thought not to have existed then, nor to have been able to survive in Greenland's ancient habitat, and mastodons, which were thought to have lived in North American forests. Villerschleve said, quote, no one would have predicted this ecosystem in northern Greenland at this time. Collected in 2006, the DNA samples were found at the mouth of a fjord at Greenland's northernmost point. After numerous attempts, new DNA technology finally resulted in successful DNA sequencing and cross-referenced genetic libraries of plants and animals. The previous record was one million years old. Villersleeve added that it may be possible to find fragments of so-called, quote, environmental DNA in samples as far back as 4 million years. Scientists suggest that studying the deep histories of Greenland and Antarctica could reveal important information about previous times when Earth's climate changed rapidly. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. We have a couple of spins, and Narrative A is coming from Newsbud. The newly discovered lost world of Greenland is a close analog to what the region could look like if our current climate change trends continue unabated. This shows that plants and animals can evolve quickly in the face of a changing climate. And the more we learn about similar areas of rapid change, the more information we have to anticipate and adjust to changes of the hothouse earth of the near future. 
And Narrative B is provided by ARS Technica. Though a fascinating discovery, we can't extrapolate our climate future based on the lush Greenland of 2 million years ago. The Lost World ecosystem enjoyed longer warm periods between ice ages, allowing species to hang out nearby and repopulate Greenland at will. Many of the species that changed the face of Greenland back then are also extinct today, so it's better to appreciate breakthroughs in paleontology for their own sake rather than incorrectly projecting them on our climate situation today. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, December 10th, 2022. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. From each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.